0: Some of you might remember back to the 1980s when team building exercises were all the rage. Well, back then I remember at a training day for a youth group mission trip and uh, deciding that, you know, really what we needed to do was one of those trust fall things with the kids. <laughs> So I picked a student and had him climb up onto a four or five foot high ledge above some nice smooth pavement. (laughs) (laughs) And then I turned toward the group and began to explain to them how this was going to work, how their friend would fall backwards off the ledge and they would catch him. What I didn't realize is that while I was talking to the group and they were looking at me, that kid that I'd picked was up on the ledge with his back turned towards us thinking that he should be doing what it was that I was describing as I described it. Trust was not built that day. (laughs) Thankfully, he fell more or less upon the unsuspecting group, which broke his fall, kind of. (laughs) You know, not many of us have experienced a failed trust fall, thankfully, but all of us have experienced putting our trust in someone only to be hit with disappointment and hurt, even anger when they fail us or even choose to betray us. Despite that often painful dynamic, though, understand this, the Christian life, as it is portrayed in the scriptures, is a life that must be lived by faith and in relationship with others. Now, I'm not saying that we're to put our faith in people. Uh, That would be a shortcut to further disappointment, hurt, and anger but we are to put our faith in God. And you know what? Living our life with our faith placed in the Lord is going to mean living a life in relationship with other people. It will mean being vulnerable and accessible and connected. And by the way, from the outside, that's going to look a lot like having faith in people, but because our faith is in God and not in other people, uh, we will end up enduring the inevitable disappointments that will come with far more grace and durability. You and I, uh, we have got to learn how to function from a foundation of, of faith. And no less than four times in scripture in Habakkuk, in Romans, in Galatians, and again in Hebrews, as scripture tells us that the righteous shall live by faith. And that, of course, is a lesson that we see Samuel learning in our passage this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, we're picking up right where we left off last week, as we always do. And so when you do this, grab your Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and then will you stand, I'll read the passage, but I do encourage you to follow along. 1 Samuel 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Since I've rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed him and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and he said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called, called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said the Lord hasn't chosen this one either either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning, in the midst of this time, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would uh, give us the ability to comprehend your word, and Lord, by hearing it and receiving it, Lord, that you would build faith into us. God, I pray that you would make use of this time. You'd bear fruit in our lives from it. God, that we would come out from here different than we came in. God, that we would be changed by the work of your Holy Spirit, applying your word to our lives. God, work in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you remember, the prophet Samuel was the one who had anointed Saul, making him that very first king over Israel. And even though Israel's demand to have a king was a rejection that Samuel had taken rather personally, yet, because he loved the people, he loved his nation, he had, he had to have hoped and prayed that Saul would have done well. And Saul did have potential. He was a successful warrior. He looked like a king, and at times it seemed like, well, Saul just might do okay. But as we've seen, Saul refused to submit himself to the Lord. He would not respond to Samuel's rebukes and he would not repent and confess his sin. So, as we saw at the end of chapter 15, God rejected Saul as king over Israel and Samuel mourned. He mourned. He grieved this failure. He was disappointed, he was hurt, he was angry. And then we read in verse one of chapter 16 uh, that the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? He really was mourning. This was no small thing for him. Uh, And understand, there is nothing wrong with feeling hurt when you experience something hurtful. Actually, It's a sign of health. If you don't ever feel any emotional pain, you're not healthy. Either that or you're living in such utter isolation, either physically or emotionally, that, that you just are not able to feel any hurt because no one is able to reach you to hurt you. Let me tell you this, that is not how God wants us to live. Now, feeling pain is not the goal, okay? And that's not where this process is supposed to come to its end. And so if you find yourself stuck in that place of being hurt, then here's what needs to happen. You've got to ask the Lord to help you move forward, to resume that that walk of faith, trusting him enough to engage in relationship with others. And learning how to leave your hurt behind and to exchange it instead for hope. Here's how that works. We have to take our hurt to Jesus. Jesus is the one who in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28 said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. As the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 147, verse 3, it is the Lord who heals the brokenhearted and who bandages their wounds. And so here we see God calling Samuel to move forward, to re-engage, to lay aside his hurt and to enter back into the very same kind of situation where he had gotten so deeply hurt before. God tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. God asks Samuel to anoint yet another man who will become king over Israel. Now, I don't know if Samuel knew the history of Jesse's family, but if he did, it would not have made him feel comfortable. Saul had come from a good and a respectable family, but Jesse's family tree was full of scandal and embarrassment. His most famous ancestor was Judah. And the line through which David's family descended uh, came through his son, Perez. Uh, But you see, Judah became the father of Perez when Judah mistook his daughter-in-law, Tamar, for a prostitute. Oh, now that's a family heirloom, isn't it? That's something that you're going to make sure gets into the papers. And Jesse's great-great-grandmother was Rahab from Jericho. She actually was a prostitute. And she wasn't even a Jew. She was a Gentile. And then there's Grandma Ruth. Remember her? She's the one who married Boaz. She too was a Gentile from Moab. To any decent Jew, these were scandalous roots. If Samuel had known, I suspect that God's choice would have troubled him deeply. But our God is a God of redemption. And redemption always starts with scandal. He saves those who are beyond all help. He rescues those who are utterly lost. You know, like us. Let me remind you of something. No matter who you are, no matter what it is that you have done, if you will turn away from your sin, if you will turn to Christ, he will redeem you. He will free you. And he will transform you. Well, the Lord tells Samuel what it is that he's supposed to do, but oh, you know, when Samuel hears this, he's got, a, he's got a big problem. He is terrified of King Saul, and rightly so. Remember, even though God has rejected Saul as king over Israel, Saul has not relinquished the throne. Saul is still powerful and Saul is becoming quite a dangerous man. Verse two, Samuel asked, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and he'll kill me. And the Lord answers, take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and then invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will let you know what you are to do. And you are to anoint for me the one that I indicate to you. God basically tells Samuel, go, just go. Yeah, I know you're afraid. Just go. You don't have to go around telling everyone what this is about, but go to Bethlehem and offer the sacrifice and do what I said. And notice that God gives him here no promise that everything's going to go fine. He he just tells him what to do and how to do it. And then Samuel has got to choose. He's got to choose regardless of the danger, regardless of uh, what Saul might think or do. Samuel has to choose. Is he going to trust God? Is he going to walk by faith or Like Saul, is he going to choose his own path and begin to live in rebellion against God himself? Well, verse 4 answers that question. Samuel did what the Lord directed. And he went to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and they asked, do you come in peace? Now, that's kind of an odd greeting. But apparently they had heard about the whole hacking agag to pieces thing. And they were kind of wondering if they were next, I think. <laughs> Honestly, it, it makes me wonder if this is Samuel's first outing since that whole thing went down. I, it kind of makes me wonder if Samuel has chosen to isolate himself. And it only now, as God calls him back out to re-engage, that he is beginning to encounter people again. In verse five, he assures them, I come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Not sacrifice you, but to sacrifice to the Lord. And so consecrate yourselves. You won't be the sacrifice, but I am inviting you to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Here we see that Samuel, is focused. He's on task. He's he's doing the thing that God has has called him to do. He has got, come back to leading God's people toward God and toward worshiping God. He, he tells the local leaders to prepare themselves to worship the Lord with him. And he also invites Jesse and his sons to come and to worship. You know, I think it's worth noticing here that. They're told to consecrate themselves. That's an interesting word. It means that they're to set themselves apart for the purpose of worshiping God. Uh, Worshiping God that day was was not to be something that was ancillary or incidental. Uh, They were to reserve themselves solely for this. It was to be their singular focus. Uh, They were to come ready to worship God, already cleansed and focused upon the task. You know, that might be a good idea for us as well. <clears throat> I wonder how it would impact our Sunday morning worship experience if, if we came prepared, if, if we came ready to worship the Savior, ready to hear from the Lord. And I get it. There are days when it feels like just victory to get here. Uh, A few of you dads, your wives are at the retreat. You came in this morning. I heard one of the guys making reference to a thousand-yard empty stair. Some of the dads came in this morning, just kind of catatonic. They looked like they hadn't slept since maybe... Thursday night and I I get it there are there are times just getting here is, is all that you can manage and if there aren't any fights in the car that's a miracle in and of itself and yet I wonder how it might change things if we became determined not just to get showered and dressed before we come to church and I do appreciate that especially the dressing part. But if we became determined to prepare ourselves, to take some time before we got here or even when we've gotten here to focus our minds, to remind ourselves what we're here for, to confess our sin and be assured of his forgiveness and his cleansing to clear our hearts of all the stuff that we're burdened with. I wonder if we would do that, how much more we would receive in this time, how much less we would miss from what the Lord desires to do in this time. You know, really, there's only one way to find out. Well, verse 6, they arrived and Samuel sees Eliab, and he says, oh, man, that's gotta be him. Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. Oh, but the Lord says to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And so the next son comes, uh, Benadab, and is presented, and the Lord tells Samuel, I haven't chosen him. Next comes Shammah, uh, but the Lord uh, hasn't chosen this one either. One by one, they all come, until seven of them have been presented and rejected. Each time the Lord telling Samuel, no, this isn't the one that I've chosen. You know, I can't really criticize Samuel for, for looking at the eldest, for looking at Eliab, and then the others thinking, well, this has got to be the one. Hey, you can be assured that, that Samuel was expecting God to pick someone who would replace Saul as king immediately. And that would mean that this person would need to be a grown man, a warrior. But it wasn't God's plan to replace Saul immediately. And so the Lord tells Samuel, listen, I'm looking at something that you cannot see. You look at their appearance, at their, their physical stature, their demeanor, even maybe their actions or their reputation. But the Lord says, listen, I'm looking at something that you can't see. I'm looking at their heart. But don't for a moment here misunderstand what it is that the Lord is saying. God is not saying that he would pick the next king of Israel uh, who would be a good guy, uh, unlike that bad apple Saul. It's not that the Lord is saying here, hey, I've picked a guy, you haven't seen him yet, his name's David, and man, he's got a good heart. He's got a good heart. No, no, please understand, both David and Saul were sinners. I'm pretty sure Bathsheba's husband would have called David a pretty bad apple if David hadn't killed him after sleeping with his wife. By the way, it's true of all of us. Every one of us is a sinner. And not just all of us, but every leader that we might look to. Every pastor has clay feet. We are all sinners. And given enough time, we are all more than likely to disappoint you. So don't put anyone up on a pedestal. Don't make any man your hero, especially someone that you don't really know and who you aren't actually living life with. Remember, the further away you are from truly walking through life with someone, the easier it is to begin to see them as something more than what they really are. What Jeremiah 17, 9 says is true of all of us, David included. There, Jeremiah says this, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Or as the good old King James puts it, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's just true. You know, David sinned every bit as much as Saul did, if not more. But the difference is this. David repented. David responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to being confronted by God's prophet. He, he repented of his sin. He confessed it. He turned away from it. And that made all the difference. That changes everything because you and I, we know that, that if we will confess our sin, that God is faithful and he is righteous and he will not only forgive us of our sin, but he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse us not only from the guilt, but from the connection with it. He will remove it from our lives. What the Lord is telling Samuel is that the man that he has picked, really the boy, David, is someone whose heart is turned to the Lord. And so when they fail, they will repent and turn back. Well, there in Bethlehem, Samuel has been presented with son after son. And each time the Lord says, nope, not that one, not this one either, until eventually he runs out of sons. Now, I understand this created a bit of a faith crisis for Samuel, I'm sure. Uh, Think about this. He had to overcome some pretty substantial hurt and fear just to get to Bethlehem, uh, just to obey God and to come with a, a, you know, the, this, the, this ram's horn full of oil uh, ready to anoint someone. And then he passed over what, what seemed to him to be perfectly good candidate after candidate until there was no one left. And as we have often found ourselves, Samuel now finds himself in a dead end. Have you been there? If you felt like you were obeying God, you were doing the thing that God had called you to do, and yet you get to a place and you find yourself in a box canyon, and you find yourself in a dead end alley, and there's no place to go and there's no answer to the problem, and you're not sure what to do, So what do you do when you come to a dead end? Well, that's when you and I, we really need to remember exactly what faith is. Because you see, faith is trusting God when we can't see. And it's trusting him despite what we do see. Hebrews 1 puts it this way. It says, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, uh, the proof of what is not seen. Uh, Maybe I'm just stupid, but I have no idea what that means. Uh, Faith is what is hoped for and what is not seen, these intangible things, and yet at the same time, it is reality and it is proof. So how does that work? Well, here's how it works. You see, our faith, it's not founded upon the circumstances that we can see. Our faith isn't based upon the, uh, the tangible issues of our circumstances, but rather our faith is founded upon the invisible God. Our faith is founded upon the God that we cannot see. Our faith is based upon the person of God. It's not based upon a concept or a tradition. It's not founded on statistics or odds. Our faith is founded upon God himself. And that's a sure foundation. Because God and God alone is perfectly holy and always just. He is the only one who is truly, truly worthy of our trust, deserving of our worship, entirely trustworthy. And faith, faith is intimately connected with drawing near to God, coming to really know him. Hebrews eleven six, just a few verses later says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God since the one who draws near to him and really drawing near to him is what pleases him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him you've got to believe that God is there and that uh, that he can be known by those who would seek him. So we must have faith in order to walk with God, in order to know him and to to please him. But that makes me ask this. If we lack faith, uh, then what are we to do then? How is it are we to then get faith? Well, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us this. Faith comes from what is heard and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So you and I, if we want to gain faith, if we want to grow in faith, we do that as we hear the word of God. And I don't mean in some sort of magical sense like reading an incantation and becoming enchanted by it, but rather as we... Hear the word of God as we receive it as truth, as we read it or hear it read, as we hear it taught, as we accept and embrace the truths that it presents, as we submit ourselves and our living to the word of God, we will grow in faith. Do you lack faith? Then get into the word marinate yourself in it, soak in it. Don't just just expose yourself to the word to check a box, uh, but rather do whatever you can to get the word of God into you and your faith will grow. You will begin to see life differently because you will begin to see your circumstances through the lens of the word of God. You'll begin to know what it means to walk by faith, not by sight. You'll begin to choose to obey God, even when circumstances argue against it. You'll begin to trust God, even when you don't see or understand what it is that he's doing in your life. You'll begin to worship him even before you come to that part of the story where God brings all those loose ends together and ties them up all neatly. You see, faith is trusting God even when you do not yet see his solution to your situation. That's where Samuel was. He was supposed to anoint a son of Jesse. In great fear, he came, and uh, despite the, the, the threat of Saul. He came despite his own inner angst over anointing yet another king over Israel. He came trusting, believing the Lord that one of the sons of Jesse would be the one who would be anointed as the next king of Israel. And yet as they came before him one by one, God said no to each of them. So Samuel asks the obvious question. Do you have any other sons? Are these all the sons that you have? And, and Jesse admits, oh, well, they're still the youngest. I mean, yeah, He's tending the sheep. I mean, why would you even want to know about him? David's own father did not think it was worth the bother to invite David. God's prophet had specifically asked him for all of his sons. Yet Jesse still does not include David. He was young. He was the least. He seems to have been the least important as well but not in God's eyes. Not in God's plan. You see, God had great plans for David. He wasn't the biggest. He wasn't the strongest. He wasn't as kingly as Saul. But he was the one that the Lord had chosen. And so Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We're not moving forward until you do. We're not going to sit down to eat until he gets here. Now, this is a family with eight brothers. Delaying dinner is a big deal. <laughs> you know, and Samuel knows, he knows where the leverage is. It's like, well, we're not eating. No, no one <coughs> eats anything until David is with us. Yeah, you know, I, I look at this and. and This whole thing, it's a great reminder for us that when we come to a dead end, when we begin to look around and and we conclude that all of our options are exhausted, hang on. Don't give up yet. Certainly don't compromise. Don't settle. If God is the one who has established the, the standard, You can hold on to it confidently. Hang on, because God has resources and ways that you know nothing about. So, verse 12, Jesse sent for David. And when he arrives, the Lord tells Samuel, anoint him. He's the one. Unlikely as he was, young, as he was. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And I think they were all like, what is that? What is going on? And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. And I think David was thinking, what is that? What is going on here? And then it's, it's interesting. The next thing we read is then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Uh, So David is anointed with oil and more importantly with with God's Holy Spirit but then uh, life just goes back to normal. David goes back to the sheep. Samuel goes back to Ramah. Uh, Saul continues in his rebellion and I'm sure David's brothers continued to refer to him as the least. Seems that no one but Samuel really understood what it was that had just gone on. But now, there is one difference. God has his man, and he is beginning to prepare him. He is beginning to teach David what it means to walk by faith in the mundane normalcy of day-in, day-out life. These lessons of preparation, they will go on for a long, long time and they will be difficult. At times, the the lessons that David has to learn before God makes him king will push him to the very limits of all that he has within him. But David is a young man who has a heart that is seeking after God. And so David will continue to pursue He will continue to draw near to God. He will continue to walk in faith. He will continue, even when he has failed, to turn back to the Lord. He'll confess his sin. He'll receive forgiveness. And he will continue to learn to walk by faith. And so should we. You know, this... This whole life that we live of following Christ is built on faith. Our whole salvation is, is the foundation of it is faith. We're not putting our trust in in our ability to reform ourselves or to do better or to somehow meet God's approval because we have turned over a new leaf or that we're doing better but rather it's because of the cross. It's because of the Savior. We are trusting, we are putting our faith in God accepting the sacrifice of Jesus in our place and as payment for our sin. So today, we're going to conclude our time. I'm going to invite the worship team to return. Come on up, guys. And as we worship, we are going to have opportunity to uh, come to the Lord's table to celebrate communion together. And what that is all about, it's not a ritual that we perform that through which we receive salvation, but it is a reminder. It is a reminder of the thing that has saved us. It is an expression of our faith being placed in Christ and his his death in our place. His death is payment for our sin. Uh, We do this because Jesus uh, gathered with his disciples uh, just before he was arrested and taken and eventually crucified and died. And as he ate that last supper with his disciples in the midst of a very traditional meal, he, he took bread. He broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this, this is my body given for you, telling them, listen, I am going to become physically, I am going to become a sacrifice in your place. Uh, even though Jesus had never sinned, he was free from sin and did not have to die because of that. He chose to take death in our place. He revisits this whole idea a little later in the, in the mill and, and as they are partaking of the, the traditional cups uh, of the Passover dinner, he takes of the third cup and he gives it to his disciples and he says, Take and drink. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. <coughs> Jesus is saying, Listen, I'm going to give up my life to pay the penalty for your sins so that you might live. We put our faith. what Christ has done. We trust that God has accepted that he has received as payment for our sin the death of, of our perfect sacrifice of Jesus. That's what we remember. And so as we worship, if you belong to Christ, then we invite you to come and to to take of the elements, return to your seed and partake of them, just you and the Lord, remembering what they they represent and what it is there to remind us of. And you can worship him and you can thank him that he died for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your faithfulness. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you have taken our sin that you have purchased our cleansing. God, that you have redeemed us for eternity. The relationship with you lies open before us. That we are welcome to draw near by faith. And God, I pray that you would help us, help us to grow in our, our ability to walk by faith, to live our lives by faith. God, I pray that you would heal our hurts. I pray that we would be willing and ready to engage as your ambassadors as you've commanded, trusting you to empower and strengthen us, to be our shield and our salvation. We worship you, and we pray it all in Jesus' name.